0: Aloha Rajanaka. Douglas Brooks here. Hope this finds you well. I'd like to tell a story today that you may have heard, but all stories worth telling are worth telling again. And so forgive me if this is too familiar. One of the things that makes myths really worth the retelling is that they speak to issues of the soul in ways that move with us. What I mean is, we change. We age, and life brings us experiences. It raises different kinds of issues, and it causes us to think and feel differently. It's a lifelong process with myth, just like it is with our own self-evolution. What we are experiencing invites our engagement. Analysis would have been Jung's preferred term, but ours would be yoga. When we revisit a great story, the practice of yoga means that we're looking for meaning, for insight. Oftentimes we're looking for guidance, sometimes for deterrence, as in, don't do that, or don't do that again. And then this interpretation helps us understand what's going on in head and heart, in our human concerns as individuals, as family, community, society. Myths can mean as many things as we need from them because, at their best, the lies they are telling us give us permission sometimes to dismiss their hard lessons, sometimes to take them to heart. As we try to figure out what those lessons are more than superficial moralism or simpler choices. um, Hey, wildebeest dude, don't jump in that crock infested river unless you've got some very good reasons. We are challenged to go deeper. That's what a myth invites us to the deeper we go. The more we're likely to find out that the myth doesn't make our lives simpler or easier if what we mean is, oh that solves my issue or explains my situation. Rather the myth, like the meaning, involves further complexities. It raises complications. It invites us to address confusion that might not be solvent into sureties. If we treat myths as if they are childish moral fictions, or remnants of a superstitious past, as in, we know better now that there are no dragons, as if we're just telling a story. Then we're skipping out on the opportunity to dive into the deep end of the soul pool. And don't think that it's just because we don't know how to interpret myths. Truth is, we've been told that they don't have value. Oh, that's just a myth. It's a way of giving ourselves a bypass. If we look inside to find what's in them, we may have to confront ourselves, deal with deeper truths. Now, it's hard work finding help interpreting mythic worlds, because every poke at a symbol usually stirs more distraction, disorientation, downright perplexity. If we can stop asking, did this really happen, and instead ask, what is all this trying to tell us? Then we can take the long way home to meaning instead of the shortcuts to literalism and superficiality. Maybe avoid some of that problem that in Sanskrit is called the maha, the great. And the great doesn't just mean wondrous or fabulous, like that's a great movie. It means in myth something that's protracted, stretching imagination, lingering doubt, expanding possibilities, towering over a vast ocean that looks to horizons, that may not only be inviting, but also daunting, honestly scary. What we might find out about ourselves nearly always asks more than what we thought it would. It's like trying to build a house for the soul on a budget after you've only burnt it halfway down. It's a little too familiar. And myths involve cost overruns, unexpected expenses, good reasons to change course or simply leave matters unfinished, because they're too hard, too expensive to manage for heart and mind. I sometimes bypass the further possibilities of meaning because it's going to be hard to admit that our fellow humans can be so, so debased or wretched, or that the myth speaks to values that we just cannot abide. You see, there are bad myths. I say this because there are things humans just shouldn't do, which means Maybe they should never have done them or thought that was a good idea. But while the goodness of myths is not to be taken as intrinsic, there's usually something to be culled from even the most problematic stories, especially the ones that endure, at least so that we might take an honest shot at meaning for worse and for better. Myths aren't told to make us feel better about being human. They're told so that we can figure out what it means to be human that's not always comfortable. So this is a long prelude to the fugue that's probably not unusual for you. My favorite stories come from the great epic Mahabharata, where digression, apostrophe, wandering, parenthesis, departure from the main narrative is the rule rather than the exception. Wherever you are is the story. Remember that one. And for that insight, we must love Mahabharata. It refuses to deny any opportunity to tell a tale that warrants telling. And sometimes these tales don't earn such warrants, but still get told. Somewhere in almost 100,000 lines of Sanskrit is everything human and densam. Today includes the indensa. So in book one, not far from the outset of learning that our principal heroes, the Pandavas, and their downright evil cousins, the Kaurava, have finally engaged their family rivalry to to next level. This is an allegory of character questions, of power and authority, and things have taken a decided turn. At this point in the story, Pandavas and Kauravas are generationally near the same age. They're barely more than young teenagers. They're very much involved in games that started like lion cubs battling in play. And now it's increasingly more dangerous, the encounters more potentially deadly. Alas, the Kauravas are going to show us here that even at this still tender age, their desires, motives, designs, their actions are unambiguous, shameless, determined. They seek to eliminate their rival cousins. Their threats are not idle, their intentions are now declared, and their plots are worthy of a Jack Smith, Fonnie Willis level of investigation. We have heard the incendiary language, the threats, the promises, the intimidation, the menace. We have to take the coward of us seriously. It's hard to take evil seriously. We want to think better of folks. We want to think that they're not capable, or that we know them, or that because we know them, or because they're our neighbors, or in this case, our cousins, that they couldn't possibly. But there's going to be complicity and collusion. There's going to be a tacit admission. People are going to take sides, and we're going to find out tests of character. And it's going to reach a point, a real turning point, where we have to take them at their word, and we have to take seriously that as deeply as we've cared or as well as we think we knew them, life has taken a turn, and they've made their choices. The choice here is for nihilism. It's for evil. It's murderous. The young us could not pull off their design, Without these tacit compliances, this conspiratorial collusion of certain elders, counselors, allies, everyone in this game has a stake in personal advancement, or at the very least staying out of the sights of these incorrigible reprobates, who would just as soon take them down and include them in another murderous plan. For everyone who suggests disloyalty or questions their behavior is no longer an ally but an enemy. The Kauravas will throw anyone under the bus who doesn't serve their interests. Sound familiar? So the bullying has worked, and the Kauravas have set in motion an assassination, this time an assassination by arson. This is the famous story of the House of Lac, a house of lacquer, a tinderbox. Their aim is to burn their cousins down while they sleep in this lacquer house. And the Pandavas have been tipped off by their uncle Vidura, who by consequence of birth is outside the lines of succession and spends most of his time doing the right thing or telling other people that they should do the right thing, which invariably, in this case, leads to some very futile efforts to bring comity to a fractured family. The Kauravas are in the thralls of their own own madness. And we have to wonder how this happened. It's become cultic. They can't turn away. The plan that saves the Pandavas, that Vidura suggests, and saves them from this sadistic and pitiless end, is equally ruthless and cold-blooded. That's the hard part of today's story. You see, Vidura and allies conjure a plan to invite a family of five brothers and a mother who come from the lower classes to take the Pandavas' place in the lacquer house as if they were being offered a privileged lodging for the night. They're at a wedding. And yet Vidura and allies know full well that the a plan to burn down the house that very night. There are moral misgivings, whatever scruples they may have had. The notion that these poor souls should die as substitutes or scapegoats, that they are being duped and then sacrificed for the sake of Pandava survival is at least, to my reading, a little too easily admitted. Is life so cheap? but I've been reading this again. What makes one life more valuable than another? We find ourselves in an irresolvable quandary. This isn't a story about moral justifications or rationalizations. This is a story about what happens when nihilism bullies and cajoles and infests itself infects our hearts, causes our decisions to reach boundaries or to turn to efforts we could not have imagined. It is an existential crisis. It's not like any ordinary election. It's not like a dispute over policies or views. It's not an ordinary rivalry rooting one team over the other. It's not a difference of values or principles that you could argue about and, and and conceive of some kind of plausible, albeit difficult compromise. No, what is at stake here is existential, a difficult word to use, because the very existence is at stake. This is what is at stake for the Pandavas here, when they're murderous arsonist cousins, decide that their deaths are more important than any other relationship, than any other connection, family, community, even the politics of it. Isn't that where we face ourselves today? Are we not in an existential battle for the republic, for democracy? We know what awaits us. They've told us what they'll do. They've told us what revenge will look like. In this case, what matters of conscience could stand some revision in Mahabharata. The ethos of this story is a confrontation that asks, in the face of existential crisis, in the face of a world in which the victors being nihilist, mean the end of all value and meaning as we understand it, one that so cheapens life as to propose murder, violence, threat, as the ordinary state, as the way of living itself. This is the ethos of a story that makes us ask, what makes life really worth living, and how do we seriously address the costs of ...of living under an intolerable oppression. That's what's at stake in this strange story... ...about rival teenagers in in ancient India. And what might be the cost in lives... ...in this case, is tragic and sad. In fact, it's appalling. And the fateful matter warrants our grievous considerations... But as the story goes on, it's not so for long because these consequences will not be delayed. The effort to secure the future is uncertain. What we do know is that karma is not left to sort itself out. There's no bypass. There's no asocial interiorization. You can't meditate your way out of this problem. It's a real world, and karma can't be left to sort itself out simply by claiming yoga is a refuge of immunity, invulnerability. The pond of a conspiracy to murder their substitutes is an exigent feature of how good and evil are inseparable features of a life that must determine value. We will invariably create horrific shadows in the name of perpetuating light. I'm often reminded in June of that night before when when Ike, when Eisenhower wrote that note, fearing that D-Day would fail, but knowing that he was sending tens of hundreds, thousands to their death the next morning. For what? Young, innocent men on a beach Murdered for a cause? Or fighting for something of value? The Pandavas have fled to the forest. That surrogate family dies in the arsonist's fire, as we would expect they would. Their bodies are mistaken for the Pandavas and their mother Kunti. And there is yet time an interval to create further possibilities, to address what can be done. I wish the story gave us Further consideration, contemplation of their conscience, of what it means of what it means to have sacrificed these folks who died innocently, unaware, not knowing they were dying for a cause, not putting their lives at stake, but being made the victims of a purpose, of a goal, in this case Pandava survival. This strategy of fleeing to the forest will not derail the runaway train of fate because their Cowdova cousins are truly, genuinely depraved. And at which point this is existential, and yet what's been purchased with these lives is a different situation. Maybe another chance. How difficult it is to grasp the value of this story. And there's no way to leave it uncomplicated. No way, I think, to resolve this. Nothing about this story is going to prove particularly uplifting or edifying. Mahabharata's plot here means to place us in an irreconcilable and mournful situation in which the claim to survival and the postponement of this ruinous death of our heroes, is regarded the better of all still worse choices. Now, ain't that the truth sometimes? But if we aren't yet appalled, just wait, because the heroic task does not make for virtue, but speaks to cause. It invariably fails to meet the call of virtue and principle above perceived necessity and exigency. But that, I think, is precisely the point. The hero isn't called to virtue or to principle as such. They're called to necessity. And no, no one in this existential situation, for that matter, no hero or heroine, comes out unscathed, relieved of the feckless and the calumny that follows from the burning light of those who would make their world their own debauched field without even a pretense of decency. There are no unconflicted heroes, only unconflicted villains. Let's make sure we understand that point. The streets littered with broken heroes on a last chance power drive. There aren't any other kind of heroes. The broken ones are the ones we have to trust, the ones that are vulnerable, the ones that know. We're buying time when evil presses upon our hearts and then demands that we make an unsavory and unhappy choice. So now we find our heroes deep in the forest where the local denizens are not nihilists, but hungry. Wild animal predators, hungry nocturnal demons, all sorts all trying to make a living in a precarious world. Our pond of the heroes, they're fresh from their own escape, exhausted, I think, by the wanton violence that they themselves have dressed up as necessary for their long-term purpose. Yeah, they've bought some time. They victimized and cruelly placed the death of others in front of their own lives. There is an undisguised iniquity to it all, and worse still, their murderous cousins. For now, the Pandava make what they think is a safe sojourn, a brief respite from the murderous wretch that chases them down. Nighttime is certainly the most perilous time in this forest for them, sleeping perchance to dream, as Hamlet reminds us. Unfortunately, they sleep in this case more from exhaustion than from troubled conscience. That bothers me. But as the epic is wont to remind us, there is no respite from the danger the real world brings, least of all those things you can't see in the light of day. Sometimes we need a moment. We need a respite. We need to take a vacation or go to a concert or turn off the news, we need to refresh ourselves. But it's like the pond of a night. The danger is still there. We can retreat from it all and claim our own personal cave, our mountaintop, our yogic insulation, turn away from the world and let it be everyone else's problem. That's a fatalism, I think, we cannot commend, and one that the epic will not allow. The world isn't going to let up just because we choose to ignore it. So the question becomes how to engage it, when even our best efforts lead us to such tragic, painful circumstances. That's so much a part of this story. And here the Pandava heroes find themselves Deep in this forest, with no respite from the dangers the world brings, wherever they go, they find yet the next daunting task before them. Isn't that a lesson for us to take to heart? So life doesn't let up. Choose your battles and know that it's not about the ease, but about what you're willing to do to address the crisis that's the ordinary state of affairs. So let's take this to the next story. Because we know that now here, deep in the forest, the Pandavas have found at least a moment of respite from their Kaurava predators. But what awaits them in the dark? What lurks? What gazes upon them from beyond the fire in the night as predator? Well, what are you hungry for? And what are you willing to do to satisfy those needs or wants? Our next story is a concern, not for nihilism, but for matters of appetite. Those, we might say, those appetites of the soul, that need to make a living, even that survival, food, love, lust, legitimacy, these are the ordinary Matters of crisis. This is not the same as that existential ruin the Kauravas promise to bring when they bring arson. And the Pandavas resort to their own form of victim murder in the surrogates who die for them. Here the story turns and reminds us that in a dangerous world, those feelings and desires and needs, those that bring us sometimes to the edge of life and death or care and concern. That kind of crisis, that's the one we should should live with. That's the kind we we know is ordinary. And so here the story brings out the contrast. That place where the ruinous house of lack reminds us that the nihilists, those depraved enough to conspire and connive violence and death those nihilists they must not be allowed to stand and the young pandava they lose this battle they lose it so so decidedly that they make those innocent folks the victims of the story they must learn to live with themselves and create a future, and address that nihilism. But now the story turns. We find them deep in the forest. We find them surrounded by the darkness, by the unknown, by the hidden predators, with hungry beings and hungry ghosts as neighbors. What then? We'll take up next this story of what I'd like to call the ordinary crisis, the appetites of the shadows, what happens in the dark. But for now, let's remind ourselves that a house of lack brought its own consequences. Let us not confuse the murderous aims of the nihilists, those who would destroy us at our very core, who seek our elimination, with that way in which life every day brings its own crisis, its own shadow and predation. That's just how life goes. And it's important here, I think, in Mahabharata to make this the turning point. Turn away from the nihilists. Do what you can to defeat them. It's a matter of living to fight the battle the next day if you can't win this one don't expect to retreat into a place where there's going to be resolution or where the crisis abates. It just changes terms. This is a fragile life, but one of undaunted courage. Sometimes that courage demands we do things we cannot imagine. And yet meaning, meaning is made when we face ourselves and we know that the crisis ahead is one worth our attention, our care. We know that we are people of ordinary appetites and deep needs. Thank you for your time, Rajanika. Thanks for this story today. This one's not an easy one. We're not living in easy times. Let's make sure we understand the difference our choices make and the consequences of what it means to live a life of meaning. We'll talk soon. Till then, do take care. Yeah, are we from the top? Uh-huh. Well, I got a little story I want to tell you about this muddy water. has yet told a real story about this muddy water. You know, when you invited out to those cocktail parties, yeah? That ain't not my muddy water you're drinking. I've seen a lot of good men lose their happy home just because of that muddy water. I told my baby, I said, baby, we got to have our little talk. I ought to pack up my things and walk. I don't know. Go from hand to hand.